Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 8 of Unlimited Opinions. I'm Adam Bishop. I am Mark Bishop. And we are, of course, reading James Hitchcock's History of the Catholic Church, this time discussing the chapter on Christendom, or at least the first half of it. Uh, we're doing another two-parter here because these are long, dense chapters with all kinds of information that would take a very long episode to get through if we, we put it all in one episode. Um, we've been hitting like hour and 20-minute episodes anyway, even splitting them into two uh, with the last ones, so unless somebody wants to sit through a, a two-hour, 40-minute Unlimited Opinions episode. I think this is this is the better choice. Well, I, I run out of steam after about 44 minutes mm-hmm. anyway. Well, uh, I, I think we've been very consistent. It's been like an hour 19 and change for like the last four. And I think that's because there's a certain point where you just hit and you just want to get wrapped up as soon as possible. And so we always end up at the exact same time, Mark. I I, I feel that, like a wave of fatigue and, mm-hmm. and um, boredom. <laughs> flowing over me that's good <laughs> that's good i'm glad that that's I'm, I'm empathic i'm feeling it from the listener the listener's like oh shut up well you know i'm frustrated by these though because there is so mm-hmm. much stuff to talk about i don't i can't i feel like i'm not free to just uh do random rants about unrelated topics mm-hmm. I'm constrained by the by this, uh, this don't don't limit yourself just just go <laughs> for it i guess don't encourage me uh, I, I feel like I'm rant free today. I'm feeling mm, that's all right. good. Uh, I'm a little tired before we got went on the air. I mentioned I'd run this morning, and and now it's uh, eight o'clock in the evening, mm-hmm. and I'm sleepy. Uh, that's good. That. That's good. Um, so I think it'll keep me between the lines. No, I and hope I'm, so. I I feel like I'm broadcasting from a bunker because i'm in my unfinished basement yes we're, we're of course back um online we're no longer in person i'm back up at uh up in college so i guess streaming. we'll do it in person this weekend yeah yeah i'll be coming home for for labor day so that'll be nice that'll be nice labor day yeah always yes. good to see the boys you'll be able to right. visit your brother jonah coming back from simo that is Sam's true not, Sam's not coming in he's gonna work mm. yeah well that makes sense eli lives here still so you'll see him Yes, yes. Thank you for the recap on where all of my brothers are. I will say this. I'm having mm-hmm. a hard time cooking. Well, of course, I do most of the cooking here, mm. uh, as you know, but our listener may not be aware of. And now, and your mother doesn't eat food. I think she mm-hmm. just consists on, uh, like, uh, buy water, that's B-A-A, mm-hmm. and um, air. I think that's mm-hmm. how. I think that's all she consumes during the day. I think she photosynthesizes. I think she's figured out how. <laughs> or, or what do mushrooms do? They, they they do some sort of chemical process. How do mushrooms grow? I don't know. A photosynthesis. She might yeah, be. I a, guess it wouldn't be photosynthesis. Four or something like that. Mm, that I'll have to mention it to her later. Sense. <laughs> yeah, she'll get a kick out of that. <laughs> That's uh, that'll be my romantic talk this evening <laughs> with your mother. Hey, Ew. I said you were a spore. Uh, anyway. So let's talk about Christendom. <laughs> there we go. Uh, all right. So we're talking about this next uh, chapter or section is about after the the Dark Ages, as they mm-hmm. call it. How dark it is. I think current world is darker than that. Yeah. So we're into the really the Middle Ages, which is kind of a bright line year 1000, which I often, I don't know why I often now even still think about. Uh, how nervous the Christians must have been with the year 1000 approaching mm-hmm. because you would think, well, if God was going to come back at the, be at the millennium, you know, at the, yeah. at the 1000 mark, a nice round number, mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't happen because you know, there were people that were kind of nervous about that about 2000. Yeah. 
Well, that thing. wasn't that like a whole thing with um like the banking systems because they thought all the computers couldn't process the turn of the date and we just like lose our whole like economic system. Well, there was a lot. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of work that went into it, as I understand it, uh, leading up to the year 2000, because so many computer programs were were created, well, like in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, and they didn't even think about how long they were going to be in use, and so they mm-hmm. had a two-digit date code, mm-hmm. and they're they're afraid that there'll be errors in the coding because it would go to zero zero instead of 90, you know, from 99 to zero zero. Mm-hmm. It would, and then it would, it would be confused and it would think of it as 1900. Mm-hmm. So like the next date would actually be before the, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like a time concept, mm-hmm. but so there were people that were kind of nervous about that. Like, well, are the nuclear warheads going to shoot off or something? You know, I don't know. Well, I still but, remember uh, the weirdos in 2012 who were convinced that the world was going to end. Cause I was like the whole Mayan calendar thing. Because the Mayan uh, calendar only counted till 2012, and like they knew when the end of the world was going to happen. There are some some weirdos who are really convinced of that. Yeah, anybody who follows Mayan philosophy is an idiot. Uh, Mayans <laughs> That's are horrible yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really really the only you know one of the best things that uh, the Spanish did was to wipe out the Mayans. How do you <laughs> like that for a quote? <laughs> That's going on a T-shirt. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you shouldn't murder people. That's uh, true. You should not. And they did murder a lot of people, but boy, the Mayans murdered a lot more, man. Mm-hmm. But in any event, that was a dark age. Yes. But we're talking about the Middle Ages, and that's um, really, it's during this period of time uh, that where they're, you're kind of struggling with and getting some more stability, some more mm-hmm. um, uh, like some consolidation of power. Uh, within kingdoms and so you're not just kind of like uh, anarchy with you know a little mm-hmm. village here a little little kingdom there and because of the um uh, you know centralizing the the power and the authority you're able to have a you know a lot more trade more travel with some safety and you get a revival of urban life because you have a certain amount of law and order mm-hmm. and then that of course allows people to actually spend some time reading and writing and thinking. Um, and uh, they were uh, states that were expressly uh, Christian, mm-hmm. Catholic, really specifically. And uh, um, I thought this was kind of an interesting uh, point for the book that I don't know the truth of it. I don't know. So, but it says, uh, uh, let's see, an exalted view of the universal society that came closest to realization during the 13th century, not because of the faith, was then perfectly lived, but because all aspects of life were consciously ordered towards mm-hmm. Christian. So it's kind of an interesting way to look mm-hmm. at it. Like, and he yeah, goes on like, to talk about this a little bit more. Sorry to cut you off. Um, but he says, you know, even just like in the planning of each individual city, you know, they made sure that the church spire was the highest point and everything was oriented so that you're always reminded of Christianity, which is something that I think I, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, but something that's completely lost in today's society of even just like planning your city to have some sort of meaning. You know, everything's just so utilitarian or everything's just so, you know, here's my new take on something weird that we're going to throw in the middle of the city here. You know, you don't have that sort of spirit of we should orient everything towards a specific goal. We just don't have that anymore. Right. And and and, and speaking as a municipal lawyer, you know, I've, I don't I don't know how many examples I had of either appointed or elected officials that say, well, we can't do that uh, because, it, it, you know, like for a Christmas uh, celebration or something, you know, like a civic event. Oh, we can we even do that? Because isn't that against the law, the, the separation mm-hmm. of church and state? And I'm like, damn it, there is no separation of church and state in the constitution. Mm-hmm. 
you know there there but there is you know if you make a um a bulletin sign at city hall and you make it available for the local church well if some goofball church comes in you can't exclude them you know but mm-hmm. but it doesn't prohibit a municipality from taking those into consideration and in fact uh political subdivisions have a constitutional right of speech which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting so they can they can espouse certain point of views um as a municipality which i i think most of them think they can't, you know, mm-hmm. I think just the, the run of the mill, that's like the ACLU back in the seventies and eighties uh, really uh, pushed the envelope say, and, and people think that there's some sort of prohibition of uh, the, the uh, of church and state, you know, like the school vouchers thing. Well, you can't give money to a Catholic school or a Jewish school. Why not? You know, yeah. you, you can't, you absolutely can. You mm-hmm. can't give it to them just because they're a Catholic school or, or you know, it's because they're a school, you know, but mm-hmm. anyway, so yeah, they. I mean, of course, this was, you know, the, the, the concepts that I'm talking about are completely foreign to the people, <laughs> the Middle Ages, because, like you said, that the whole city is designed with a Christian mm-hmm. theme. That the 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 emperor or the king is gonna is gonna be debating, you know, who has more authority, either him or the Pope, uh, which we talk about uh, now and again through this chapter about the two swords theory, the you know being the the, the sword of uh, the king for the you know, the temporal area of the sword of the Pope or the religious leader for mm-hmm. the spiritual side. But anyway, so um, they also believe that their social structure was, as the author points out, was believed to be ordained by God. So they had a yeah. hierarchical structure, uh, uh, you know, with the king on top and then the, the lords and whatever, and then all the way down to the serfs who are basically slaves, mm-hmm. but not really slaves because there's a separate category below the serfs that are slaves mm-hmm. but they kind of go they run with the land so if one somebody sold uh, this acreage and there's a hundred people working it and they're serfs mm-hmm. well you sold the acreage you got the you sold the serfs with them <laughs> they're kind of like property but they weren't exactly slaves they mm-hmm. had a certain amount of independence yeah, it points out some of those those sort of benefits that they had as opposed to, to slaves again not really benefits per se um but um there was an insistence that serfs had souls, which is a good bottom line. You know, the serfs, they, they are people. They do have souls. That's an important thing to lay down. Um, and they were allowed to join crusades and receive their freedom if they did so and to become priests with their Lord's permission. Uh, marriages of serfs were valid even without such permission. And the child of one free parent was himself born free, which I thought was interesting because of all the time when you hear about slaves, you know, if they're born to, to, to one slave parent, usually it's it's believed that they're then the property of whoever owns that slave. But, you know, in serfs, it's, it's the opposite. If you have at least one free parent, you are free. Mm-hmm. Like the predominant, like I guess the uh, fifty percent is, is uh, rounded up. Uh, yeah. With the, uh, otherwise, is rounded down with a slave. Yeah. It reminds me. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna give you a completely unrelated, since you've encouraged me, completely oh, unrelated uh, story. Mm-hmm. There was a, uh, a def- when I was a young prosecutor, as a defense attorney, brilliant guy, very creative mind, and and there was a burglar who uh, broke into a house. And um, through a window, and he got stuck, and uh, and so he got charged with burglary. They show up, and he's literally stuck in the window. Help! Help! <laughs> he got stuck. It's like the window came down on his old house, and so they arrested him for burglary and attempted stealing because he didn't get any stealing. So, so the uh, the argument was it wasn't a burglary because uh, the preponderance of the body was outside the house, because <laughs> because one of the elements of a burglary was. You enter into a building with the intent to steal. 
<laughs> so his argument was, well, more than half of his body was not inside the residence. And so therefore he couldn't have possibly been guilty of, of burglary. <laughs> he would gladly really lead to an attempt, attempted stealing, mm-hmm. which in those circumstances was a misdemeanor. The judge did not, was not persuaded because mm-hmm. there was literally no case law uh, on the preponderance of the body theory of burglary. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so the next topic of the chapter is Jews. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course, in a Christian, ex- expressly Christian society, uh, Jews were outcasts, you mm-hmm. know, and, and or, uh, or, at le- or maybe like, I guess you'd say, had lesser rights, at least. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were scapegoats anytime something really bad went wrong. And as the author says, at some point or another, the Jews were exiled from almost every country or land one time or another during this period of time. But interestingly, he points out the exception, the papal states. They were never yeah. actually kicked out of the papal states, which you think they would be, you know, if, if, if it was just, you know, the Christians trying to kick them out, that the, the lands literally under direct control of the Pope never kicked them out. Yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. Finally, yeah. something uh, something uh, to speak of possibly. That's true. At least they it does make kill yeah. the Jews. That is true. And he does make the point that a lot of the, the restrictions on the Jews were, were seen as preventing them from having any authority over Christians. Because yes. they weren't technically heretics, but they should not have authority over, you know, Christ's people. So it was things like they were forbidden to own land, belong to guilds, or hold any kind of office, because all of those things would give them some sort of power over Christians. So there well, was and, a, a rationale. It wasn't just because, well, they're Jews, which, I mean, I guess is, is a big part of it. It's really the, the only part of it. It's true. Same. Well, yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, yeah, I, don't, I never understood the whole prejudice against the Jews. I just never mm. I just think it's just such a bizarro, weird thing, you know, and uh, and I joke about it. Like if uh, there's always somebody saying, oh, it's the Jews, you know, it's like, what, really? Um, <laughs> I, I, I just never, I you know, because like, it's like, I understand. And of course, I never hear any prejudice against Muslims, mm-hmm. but but you can kind of understand that with some of the, you know, well, of course, some of their philosophy. So it's so violent, you know, like the, the mm-hmm. Jews are like, we want to be separate from all you people and we're the chosen people and that kind of stuff. And so there's a certain amount of arrogance, but the, their religion doesn't say, Hey, if you, if you leave the Jewish faith, uh, we have to cut you down and kill you, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, which the, the Muslim faith, the faith is obviously a little bit more violent in some of, some of its tenets. And so I kind of understand a little more hostility, but um, I just don't, under, I just never understood yeah. the hostility of Jewish people. Uh, but you know, the, the whole idea behind uh, them not being heretics is because well they were never christians in the first place mm-hmm. they're like pre-christians mm-hmm. and, and so they're not heretics because if they're heretics they probably would get killed yeah. <laughs> during this period of time and they, they really hated the heretics burned to the stake <laughs> or whatever but um so i guess they're they're better uh than heretics because they don't know any better <laughs> mm-hmm. uh but anyway so um so what's the next chapter the next chapter is um the uh, pervasive faith. So the faith <clears throat> is all throughout the society, which you already talked about the mm-hmm. church bells. Yeah. Going off and organizing that even the time mm-hmm. of the day and uh, the whole, the whole idea, the whole concept of civil society was that the salvation of the souls was the supreme good. And that's really what you're mm-hmm. trying to do. And that's how you're structuring your, mm-hmm. your society, very patriarchal. And it kind of raises the question of, you know, what, what is the, the supreme good in, you know, our society now? Is there even like a common good that we're trying to get to? Or is it more of just like 
let people do what they want if, if that's sort of the, the the supreme good that i guess is seen in, in society today i'd say money money well yeah that's true i mean that fame maybe fame mm. is the, the 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 pure good in society mm. even if maybe. it's infamy Hmm. Uh, I mean, if you, if you, you know, like the, the surveys, if you believe in these surveys, you know, there's so many more youngsters, younger, I guess, younger than you or maybe your age that uh, would prefer to be a social influencer. Like, what mm-hmm. do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a social influencer. Mm-hmm. All social. And maybe, maybe we should all just be social influencers, you know, then, then it yeah. would be, it would so denigrate that profession because we'd all be doing it. We're all doing yeah. it. It's like, wasn't we, that what we're doing right now? Yeah, well, if anybody paid attention, yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's true. That's true. We have the benefit mm-hmm. of and the and the um, uh, related humility mm-hmm. of no one wanting to listen to us. Mm-hmm. So, well, we, we hit five thousand total downloads over like one hundred and fifty episodes uh, the other day. So, one person at least is watching us five thousand times. Uh, well, that's downloads. That's so, true. And so there could watching, be more that are you, listening. There's some weirdo staring at a blank screen. <laughs> that fair point. This, this looks great. He's so handsome. <laughs> uh, what were we even talking about? Um, yes, the common good. Yes, we just talked about. It. So let's you can kind of go along from there. Um, and then, of course, there's there's a, a discussion again about the divine and the human law. Who's in charge? You know that the there's a. Uh, exposition about the positive laws of the church and state um, that are, you know, necessary for the administration of, of justice within the um, society, mm-hmm. but not everything that was immoral. It was a necessary, necessarily illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think back, I mean, that people forget that our criminal code is based upon the biblical code and a, and yeah. a moral, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, and we've gotten away from understanding that. And that we've we've certainly overcriminalized things in our society. Mm-hmm. So they're they're just well, it's a crime because uh, they're it's prohibited, mm-hmm. as opposed to it's a crime because it's wrong, mm-hmm. and and uh, and people completely lost touch with it's a crime because it's wrong. For mm-hmm. most crimes, are, I mean, breaking into somebody's house is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you know go down on a digression about why it's wrong. It's you know it's somebody else's property, and you you have no right to take it. Blah 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 blah. But uh, and I think that's part of the disconnect with the people that are for the criminal justice reform. They won't acknowledge that the vast majority of criminal acts are just wrong or evil. Mm-hmm. And and if they if they accept that, then it's much harder to to justify uh, the revolving door or decriminalization because it's like you're giving permission to people that are doing mm-hmm. the wrong thing, the evil things or bad things. Uh, and so it's pervasive, but you know, then the the criminal justice code was so overlapped with the religious beliefs and the lit religious tenets. It was a religious code. Yeah. Uh, but even even if it was some some things were considered sins, they weren't necessarily uh, punishable by the civil authorities. Even then. Yeah. And kind of going off of that, you know, with the the whole you know, you know criminal justice reform and everything. Um, to, to quote the Babylon Bee, which we do all the time because they're very funny. They put out a headline the other day and they've done variations of this, you know, throughout the years. But like California be- becomes the first state to have a crime rate of zero by legalizing all crime. 
You know, it's that, it's that sort of attitude. If you, if you forget that some things are wrong because they are wrong and you're just trying to bring down crime because you think everything's just prohibited and there's no real moral good or bad and we just need to get these people out of prison and back. And, you know, if we just help them in the, in the right way, they'll just be good people. Um, you know, that, that's just not really how that works because we recognize some actions, you know, some people will just do bad things because they, you know, tend to be bad people. They tend to do bad actions. Um, you lose this whole attitude of, you know, we need to make sure some things are, are still outlawed because they are just wrong. You know, I don't know if I if we've talked about this. Maybe we have, but you may not believe this. But I used to be a liberal when it comes to mm-hmm. criminal justice issues, uh, and I was a public defender my first job out of law school, and and I was, um, and, and so I was, I, I believed that you know you just need to give these people an opportunity, you give, you give mm-hmm. them a job, and and they'll work, and they'll they're a victim of circumstance, uh, meaning they didn't have the same opportunities I did growing up in in uh, suburbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we didn't get touched by crime really, mm-hmm. um, and uh, had good schools and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I met them. <laughs> I met the criminals, and I realized, mm-hmm. Jesus, these people. You, you know, I had to beg them to at least temporarily get a job until they got sentenced, because mm-hmm. I knew if they had a job, they would get probation for whatever they did. And it was like pulling teeth. It was like mm-hmm. you know, it's a month, man. Go to McDonald's. Just keep that job for a month. All you got to do is for a month, part-time for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. I'm not going to work at McDonald's. That's degrading. <laughs> okay. You know, but stealing from a church, that's not degrading. I don't know. Cause I had some of those, you know, stealing burglar, I think <laughs> homes, breaking into their cars. That's not degrading. Mm-hmm. Um, getting, you know, getting arrested naked because you're so drunk and stoned. You don't even know who you are. That's not degrading, but you can't get a job at McDonald's. I don't know. So it, it that was an eye opener, and that that was the the beginning of the shift of my criminal justice. Yeah, that's great. But I mean, it, it, you you either go that way, or, or you or you you stay in that kind of bleeding heart liberal mindset, mm-hmm. and you and you get kind of trapped in that. I don't know. But anyway, so then there's a like I said, a discussion of the two swords theory. Uh we should probably mention some of these people here. John of Salisbury talked about the the two swords theory again, and and um, that granted temporal power to the state, um, but he he justified tyrannicide, uh, citing ancient precedent because if there's a wicked or unjust ruler, the civil rebellion would be sanctioned by the church because mm-hmm. he has the the tyrant would have mm-hmm. the responsibility to uh, be a good mm-hmm. person. And, yeah, uh, kind of tying back to the idea that the church decides what does and does not relate to salvation. And so right. if they determine that, you know, doing this action will help you in your salvation because there's a wicked ruler who's leading you away from God, then the church can sanction that thing. And then it's an okay thing to do. Of course, there's uh, just a mention, brief mention initially of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, that uh, his philosophy affirmed that there's a monarchy was a, was a, was the best political system, but the monarch had to act in accordance with the natural law. So it's, mm-hmm. he's, He's kind of like claiming the monarchy is part of the natural law system, meaning that it's kind of you're you're ordained to be the king by uh, God's plan, but you better keep following God's plan or else you know you're in trouble. That type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's you know kind of a, a discussion continues about um, the sacral mon- monarchy. Um, you know that the emperor. Um, became a canon of St. Peter's in Rome. So like the, this kind of melding between the two roles. And you, and you see this throughout the uh, the Middle Ages where there's kind of like a blending of authority or a challenging authority where the bishops are 
civil authority or the the, the rulers are the head of the church at least mm-hmm. locally uh where they're appointing bishops mm-hmm. uh, which makes more sense if you put it in the context of a society that everybody in it understands that the common good is is you know the salvation of the soul and so it makes more sense you know not blending those two things because theoretically both you know the bishops and the you know the civil rulers are both looking for the same thing ultimately in all of their decisions So, you know, it seems so weird to us now, but in that sort of society, when everything is oriented towards, you know, how do we save the most people's souls? It makes more sense. Yeah, I I think that's that's part of it. I think the other part is uh, what's the justification for that person being a ruler? There's no democracy. Mm -hmm. There's no vote. They're not selected by other powerful people. It's a kind of a hereditary thing most of the time. So what's the justification once ordained by God? Well, if he's mm-hmm. ordained by God, then he's in charge and he's, you know, so, so that there's, there's a lot of that overlapping, not just the purpose, okay, of our souls, because we get, we get select different leaders to, to help us with that. Mm-hmm. But that kind of like the, the, the whole way society is organized is part of God's plan too. Yes. And then, and then that person has that responsibility, authority and responsibility mm-hmm. to, to help save everybody's souls and all that kind of jazz. Um, Let's see. So I do have. I have some notes that I wanted to make sure I mentioned there was a, you know, there's talk about reforms, which I, I yes. love the reform uh, passages because it always, it's always a conflict and it, it usually ends up with somebody dying uh, or being uh, exiled or something. So there's, there's a, a, a number of examples of the, what the uh, author calls the rapacious Italian families uh, or trying to select the Pope or be involved in the, and the uh, power struggles with the emperor, the pope, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so was it Benedict uh, the Ninth, uh, 1032 to 1048, for example, was elected pope while in his 20s and later resigned on condition that he be given back all the money that he be, <laughs> that he had used to bribe uh, his election, which makes sense. He got a refund. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. you know, you don't want me to be pope anymore? Give me my money back. Um, <laughs> There's you know, a lot of a lot of that going on during this period of time, which may be a better way to pick a pope. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but you know, talking about um, let's see, Pope Henry the Third. Let's see, Emperor uh, Henry the Third. Or so what I say. Yes, you said Pope. I, pope. No, Emperor Henry the Third, which yes. is 1056, deposed one pope and forced the election of three others in short succession, including his kinsman Saint Leo the Ninth who brought a coterie of reformers with him from Germany and became a re- the real founder of the reformist movement. Mm-hmm. Leo, I'm quoting here from the book, of course. Uh, Leo restored the freedom of the papal elections, forbade the clergy to be involved in violence, and castigated them for oppressing the poor. Good for him. Helped. Those are those are good good reforms, I think. I think those are, those are good steps for the Catholic Church to take. Good first steps. Don't you yeah. think? Hey, stop, stop shaming the poor. You know, stop, stop being mean to the poor people. Well, you know, I mean... Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, part of it is uh, they believed in the system as ordained by God. They're poor, like sometimes I do say, poor and poor for a reason. But in America, a lot of times poor and poor for a reason because they chose a path that led them to Mm -hmm. spare, you know, and unless Mm -hmm. they choose a different path, they're going to stay that way. But anyway, that's a whole different subject. Well, I like what he has to say, too. He gave another example. Um, On one occasion, he demanded that a council of bishops confess publicly whether they were guilty of simony, and on the spot, he'd opposed those who were. Line up, yeah. tell me which one of you are guilty. And if you're guilty, get out. I don't want you here. Yep. Which seems a lot like your dream job. <laughs> I wouldn't believe my saying you're all guilty. Those of you <laughs> who confessed are guilty. And those of you who didn't confess are liars. 
You're all, now you're do- now you're double guilty. You're no, guilty you're of the really original crime guilty. and you're guilty of lying. Get out, all of you. <laughs> uh, so was it was that him? Was that Leo that did that? Yes, that was Leo. Leo the ninth. Where did I have that? So I guess I was looking at the uh, Nicholas II gave the College of Cardinals sole authority to elect the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 1059, 1061, which I which I was wondering when we were going to get to who started that, where they have the College of Cardinals. Mm-hmm. I assume that's when it started. Mm-hmm. Uh, acquired a two thirds majority, and um, and they, they were uh, originally the leading Roman clergy, but now are primarily members of the papal curia. Um, so yeah, they, they it's um, yeah we still have this kind of odd selection process for the, the mm-hmm. for the successor of the Pope which are cardinals, which are all named by the previous Pope, who's now no longer with us. So at that point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's the best best way to pick a religious leader. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I do like the point he mentions here that uh, conclaves, which are the meetings that they held um, where the bishops would, would, or the cardinals, I guess, would elect the Pope, were called conclaves uh, because that means with keys, because they were literally locked in a room and really weren't allowed to leave until they made a decision. Of course, they would drag on, he says, um, because of factionalism causing various popes to require their electors to live under straitened circumstances, one small cell, one servant in a meager diet, because presumably, yeah. you know, if they didn't limit those things, they would just literally drag on forever. You know, if they could yeah. just live in comfort without choosing a guy, they would. Yeah, they're essentially on house arrest. I mean, yeah. that's what was going on at the time. Um. So let's see. Gregory the Seventh was discussed next. Uh, he's like the. He's a big reformer, wasn't he? The Gregorian yes. Re- Reformation, or, or the Hildebrandian, because that was his, I think, original name. Um, yes, possibly. Reform. Yes. yes. So his reform program was, let's see, uh, identified two closely intertwined problems: the worldliness and corruption of the clergy. Okay, that's a bad problem, mm-hmm. and the control of lay lords over the church. That's the second problem. Well, how do you how do you fix those two? You know, mm-hmm. what if you, you, you well, you got to get money out of the system somehow. Yeah. So you know, he he tried to reform it in fits and starts. Um, but you know, I don't I don't think he was entirely successful. But then there was a discussion of these prince bishops, which I guess were like you. You're a prince bishop because you're, I'd be the king. The oh, king. of course, naturally. <laughs> Uh, there's a notorious, I like these discussions because I just think they're so so fascinating. Uh, like there's a notorious Bishop Odo of Bayeux, mm-hmm. uh, died in 1097, the brother of William the Conqueror of England and Normandy. Uh, he led his own armies in battle and following the death of Gregory VII, prepared to march on Rome to seize the papacy for himself, a plan that his brother thwarted. Hmm. That's one way to become Pope, I guess, lead an yeah. army. Yeah, that's true. I'm surprised we don't do that these days. You know, that seems like it'd be so commonplace. I'd like to see an army of priests mm. and uh, deacons. They'd yep. be the softest. They'd be the softest soldiers in the world. Yeah. I mean, correct. Yeah, yeah I was there's, about to say. There's got to be a couple guys that could do 10 push-ups, but uh, <laughs> our, our bishop in St. Louis hasn't done 10 push-ups probably ever in his mm. life. I mean, That's so, true. I don't know it was the last time I did 10 push-ups. Mm. But... I have to say, at, at the current time, it's because I have rotator cuff impingement. <laughs> oh, sure. I will say there's one priest who's now sadly passed away that I know of and you know of, um, who I think would lead an army and probably could, um, was longtime uh, uh, member of the, the, the high school 
um, and Father our ladies. Dalton? Yes, Father Dalton. I wasn't going to say his name, but um, I don't think so. You don't think so? I think he could lead oh, an army. He could. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm oh, saying. No, he could yeah, lead I'd, an army. Yes, that's what I'd I'm saying. Follow him. Yeah, no, yeah, but he wouldn't. Mm, that's true. Uh, you know, because he's just he was just a great guy. That's you know, true. <laughs> really, he was his generation. I, well, I shouldn't say, his generation was really the last of the normal priests uh, mm. from a big family. If you had like a 10, 10 kid family, one of them was going to be a priest and one was going to be a nun back in the day. Yeah. Irish, Irish Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was just a great salt of the earth guy. Uh, mm-hmm. and you could talk to him about regular stuff. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, there's, there's still some, you know, priests that are like that. Like, uh, well, I won't name names, but some of our, our parish priests, uh, been regular guys, you know, they had, they had careers before they went. I think it's important to have careers before they go into the priesthood. Yeah. Kind of feel that calling because otherwise you're just kind of weird. True. That's, that's want, a good point. I want to fame all the people that went straight from high school to the seminary, but we can draw our own conclusions, <laughs> which is, I think, directly related to the next subject in the book, which is celibacy. Mm-hmm. Which um, you know, it's it's we talked about in previous chapters that the it was it was really uh, I don't know if you say celebrated, uh, but certainly encouraged as a spiritual uh, measure mm-hmm. to be celibate. Uh, but it, during the Dark Ages, many parish priests were married. But in the 11th century, celibacy was made into a universal discipline in the Western Church, even to the point of decreeing that priests must send away their wives and children if they had already been married. Mm-hmm. Although many, as according to the author, continue to have mistresses. Hmm. So, well. uh, so, you know, the way things, more, more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. But now they're gay mistresses. <laughs> For the most part. <laughs> so I think that's just something that needs to end. Uh, I don't, well, all's I don't, well that ends well, you know, that's, that's good. Now that we're at this point, you know. Yeah, I mean, don't, I mean, I, I've never been a fan of the rule of celibacy for priests. I think, it, I think mm-hmm. it really, I think it's such a sacrifice. I mean, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't sacrifice things uh, for God or for the church or whatever, but it just seems to be such an unnecessary sacrifice. And I don't understand why that's that's more spiritual than than not being celibate. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But I, and I think it's going to have to change because people aren't going into the the, the priesthood. I mean, we're yeah. that's why we're consolidating in the St. Louis region because they don't have priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on that topic. I'm not sure where I stand on on priests being celibate. Um, that's all you got to say. That's all I have to say. Hmm. Um, maybe you'll have to maybe you have to convince me sometime. Uh, I won't need to convince you. Um, it's just you know it, it's reality that that kind of pushes its its way in as far as but it it um it, it it doesn't make sense to me that um that being married is less spiritual than not being married hmm. because I, I don't really, think it's i don't think it's an understanding really, of it being less spiritual i think it's an idea of two very different lives like if that makes sense, because it's like as a priest, it's a very well, I mean, I guess just by by necessity of it being, you know, impossible for them to have wives under the current system. But I think it's a very different life to lead than as a married person. I agree. I agree. Yes. I, I think it's but I don't I don't think it's better. I, I think it's worse, actually. Hmm. I think it's a worse life for them. And, yeah. 
it, now I know, you know, uh, married life can can well, can conflict with the ministry because you should mm-hmm. devote a certain amount of time to your wife and children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but uh, you'd have more of them, more priests, I would think. Yeah. Um, but but I think, um, and and of course you'd have divorce and you'd have affairs, and you'd have struggles that you wouldn't otherwise. But it seems to me that you we're, we're having those kind of issues anyway whether it be homosexual or heterosexual priests, you know, yeah. sinning. I mean, you know, we're all sinners. Yeah. They're not, they're not any different. And so it, it can't, you know, I could see there are other complications uh, in the administration of the church. If you have a wife and kids, but I think that's true of really of any job. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, and I, I just think it's such, such, uh, I don't know. I just think it's such a, a, a waste. I'm an advocate for, for good people having children. Um, and I think that, well, and like, well, let's put it this way. So I, I was, uh, I was thinking about this the other day and, um, I was kind of a, in a morose mood, mm. it's weird. And, but I was thinking of the pointlessness of life. Oh, that's good. That's, that's a good way to start a story. <laughs> but it, it, cause if you think, uh, well, it, it had to do with, I forget who it was. Somebody had, uh, a, oh yeah. So. Uh, a, a distant family member of yours passed away. Hmm. Thought we could talk offline, and there were a bunch of family photos, and there were really old family photos. But mm-hmm. there's old enough that nobody now living knows knows who in the hell were in the photos. They're not marked, <laughs> and so uh, they're not historical of any mm-hmm. importance that way. We don't even know who these people are, so they're going to get thrown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's true of any family photos. At some mm-hmm. point. Um, the people who are alive don't care about ha- keeping mementos of people they never met a couple of generations hmm. before. And so then you start thinking about well, what actually have you done in your life that's going to outlast anything? You know, I mean, all the stuff that you care about, all the stuff that you do, even in your career, you know, let's say you build something, you know, a building, well, eventually the building I mean, there's big, massive buildings that are in St. Louis or big cities or even small towns. Well, nobody now knows. I don't know who built the Farmers and Merchants Bank, which is an old stone building across from Maine Mill and Festus. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people knew at the time. I'm sure I could probably figure it out, look it up, but nobody cares mm-hmm. now. Um, so anyway, so th- then I started thinking, you know, the only thing that we really create that lasts uh, is our children. Hmm. And so, because, you know, assuming our children, you have children, assuming your children have children, that's really what we create long-term hmm. is children. Um, the other stuff is stuff. Uh, now you can, now if you're a creative person, a truly creative person, one in a million, um, like Tolkien, mm-hmm. you, you have creative art. And that can last um, and that can be enduring. And so I think those are the exception, but for my and large, most of us will live and die. And the things that we do in our life do not echo uh, into future generations, except for the people that we help create, which are our children, hmm. uh, which I think is, it becomes an inspirational thought. Yeah. Um, and priests don't have that opportunity. I don't know why, because they're, they're presumably 
the best, uh, best of us. They should be the best of us. And if they're the best of us, well, why don't they, why can't they have kids when they have really good kids? They're good people. Hmm. How do you like that? How do you like them apples? I I think you make some great points. (laughs) That was a long rant. That was a long rant. That was a good rant. Somewhat somewhat unrelated. Something to think about too, as far as what you want to do in life. I mean, if, I, I really believe I'm believing more and more, especially after that book about Tolkien, about mm-hmm. the creativity, you know, artistic, whatever creativity is, is so much more important to me after thinking about that than mm-hmm. it ever was before in my life. Hmm. Well, I have not created anything. Yeah. So maybe <laughs> you should than, get on. Other than, other than four boys. <laughs> and this you, podcast. You are my legacy. Yeah. There you go. Um, but a song sung in the woods that no one listens to. Is that a creation? Is that, does that last? No. So our podcast that nobody listens to, is it worth anything? I don't know. Anyway, reforming councils. Should we talk about reforming councils? Or do you have any other yes. thoughts about it? That's I don't right. know. We want to talk about these, these, it's, you know, there's a mention of benefices. I think that's what it's called. Those like the, their offices that uh, make a lot of money in the church mm-hmm. or they, they have powerful, um, offices, so to speak, and be able to appoint uh, personnel or priests or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, very important, also can be corrupting. So there are reforming councils because, you know, when you have, when the church has control of so much wealth and power, um, their issues come up. So they, they, they had some reforming councils. The Second Lateran Council in, 11, in 1139 took its name from the Pope's Cathedral in Rome affirmed the reform program, including the election of bishops by cathedral chapters and the third lateral council in 1179. You know, we don't have councils anymore, but uh, added the prohibition against holding a plurality of benefices. So you can't have so many of them and against Mm -hmm. laymen disposing of church property. So I guess you can't sell it. You can't give it away or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're a layman, it's got to, I guess, go through the clergy. Yeah. There's a second council of lion, lions, L lions, mm-hmm. not uh, like t- lions and tigers and pairs of mine. Yes, uh, thank you for the clarification. decreed that bishops must be confirmed by the Holy See, which I, I could see that would be an important reform because mm-hmm. all these bishops all over the place. Yeah. Uh, which of course led to frequent disputes with bishops um, as far as the share of governance in the in the, uh, in the administration of those mm-hmm. different dioceses and stuffs. And there were uh, restrictions were placed on priests at that time holding more than one benefice. Since mm-hmm. they're all about trying to divest the power and the central yeah. control of these various people in their regions. Um, and then there's a mention of the monastic exceptions. They accepted or exempted monasteries mm-hmm. because they answered directly to the Pope, really. You know, yeah. so they're they're out there, but they're answering directly to the Pope. And because of the subservience of the author says, because of the subservience of maybe bishops to lay uh, lay control, the locals, the popes exempted many monasteries from Episcopal authority so that you make them a center of reform out there, mm-hmm. uh, which is really clever. Don't you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Very Any clever. Any of those? No, I think those were good summaries. Um, I think we can move on to church and state here. Cause I think that's really the, the big section of what we're looking at here is the, the conflict and competition between the church and the state here in the, the middle ages. So yeah, the, the the of course the introductory discussion of that is about the two swords, which we talked about at length before, the mm-hmm. different different powers. And then the next section is emperor versus pope. 
Uh, so where to start? Uh, Emperor Henry the Fourth defied Pope Gregory the Seventh, uh, bolstered by the support of many of the German bishops, one of whom denigrated to Gregory's office by addressing him merely as Brother Hildebrand. <laughs> uh, but he didn't. Henry didn't have the support of many of his his lay vassals, so all his his subordinates. And um, Gregory excommunicated him, and Henry ended up having to uh, go to. Uh, had a going to Canosa experience where he had to stay out the snow for three days and uh, get begging for absolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, otherwise, I think it's very funny. That's I can just see that happening. You know, you you want forgiveness, stand in the snow for three days, and then we'll talk. Which kind of fitting if you're if you're trying to like you know depose the Pope. I think. Yeah, and and I th- I think the Pope almost had to. Uh, uh, absolve him because mm-hmm. how, how do you not if he comes in for an act of contrition mm-hmm. uh, ask for forgiveness mm-hmm. and so he just uh, humiliated him basically and then said going on away uh, mm-hmm. and then of course he went back to Germany and reasserted his authority against all the rebellious nobles I'm sure I would guess that some people died after that I would imagine and then then a synod of, of imperial bishops declared Gregory deposed and allowed Henry to name an anti-pope and Gregory died in exile from Rome, no longer supported even by many of his own cardinals. Yeah, that's, that's great. Seems like it was all pointless. <laughs> yeah, well, they these struggles from one to the other. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we want to go through all these. I mean, there's there's a there's an example in 1159. Frederick Barbarossa set up an anti-pope and twice drove Pope Alexander III from Rome, although the emperor finally submitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a the, uh, guy just keeps coming back. We don't know what to do with them. Keep running them out, and he keeps coming back. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's you know longer stories of, about oh, yeah. how it went down over the years, and and then uh, uh, you know as the author talks about the next section, you know the conflicts are sometimes merely over immediate territorial or financial advantages, uh, and so they wanted you know religious um, leaders to bless their mm-hmm. their actions. Uh, and it mentions Pope Gregory the seventh claimed sole authority to summon councils, appoint bishops, canonize saints, and depose emperors. Um, and uh, let's see, what was the, it? Was the discussion of power of the keys? Mm-hmm. Uh, he had ultimate judgment concerning rights and wrong, the power of the keys. So basically, ultimate authority uh, that Jesus gave the church mm-hmm. <laughs> the keys to the church back to uh, uh, Peter. Peter. Peter to bind and loose. You know, that's the whole principle they're working on. Is, you know, he gave him the, the ability to declare, you know, what is what is bound on earth is bound in heaven, what is loosed on earth is is loosed in heaven. So it's it's that idea of declaring what is what is right and wrong. That's the authority they're sort of lying on here. Yep. So um so the Pope can say, give me all your stuff. <laughs> True. <laughs> and you know, the Pope didn't really have any actual temporal power. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for the guy that tried to make himself Pope by leading an army to Rome, they mostly didn't have armed forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they could excommunicate you, and and that, uh, as a ruler, meant that you didn't really have the authority to be a ruler over your vassals. And it's mm-hmm. very, very disrupting. That's why the guy stood out in the snow for mm-hmm. three days. So there were some, you know, re- reform efforts with with regard to the the powerful struggles and all that stuff, and the lay power over local church finances, and I get, I would assume church ceremonies and all that stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, there was a fight uh, against lay investiture, but it had mm-hmm. limited results. Uh, results. It was officially forbidden, but survived in some places. 
And then there's a mention of uh, Pope Innocent II uh, had to struggle against an anti-pope, which I guess, you know, to me, it sounds like anti-Christ, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just somebody who's claiming to be pope and not that yeah. pope. Struggling against an anti-pope who had Norman support and at one point was taken prisoner until he acknowledged Norman rule in the southern Italy. <laughs> King France, I'm sorry, King Philip the first France <clears throat> was excommunicated three times during his reign. <laughs> And William the Conqueror supported reform, but his son, William II Rufus, 1087 to 1100, whom the monastic chroniclers considered an enemy of the church, exiled the Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm, for opposing, for opposing investiture. Although Rufus's brother, Henry I, later submitted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Again, I think that's also sort of an aspect that we've we've almost lost today when we're looking at the Middle Ages. It's just the, the, the role of the family here. I know we've kind of mentioned it briefly. So the hereditary rule, but basically anybody who was nobility um, had family members who were in charge of some province somewhere in the country. And everything was just an exchange of, okay, well, well, this cousin owns this land. What do I do for him if I need to do stuff here and that sort of thing? Um, and this all sort of relates to, to I wrote a paper last semester on um, the, the trial of Joan of Arc. And so that was very much you know wrapped up in this sort of you know competing hierarchy. Of course, this is a couple hundred years later than we're talking about here. Um, but it all sort of relied on, you know, who had the authority because it was in the war between the English and the French. Um, so they were both Christian kingdoms. Who has who, who's the right one here? Um, whole mess. Um, but it really ended up with, you know, the English bishops, you know, essentially finding that she was, you know, a witch or whatever, declaring that she was excommunicated um, because, of course, they were the English bishops and they, they supported England as opposed to France. And of course, then she was later retried by the French bishops. And of course, they found her innocent and she was a saint and, you know, later on. Um, but it all sort of goes back to that principle of excommunication and that, you know, the, the the church never really ordered anyone to be killed, you know, very, very technically. Um, they did not have the authority to, to, to declare anyone killed, but they're excommunicated. Here you go, civil authority. It's in your hands to do with them what you like. And of course, you know, just about all the time, the, the civil authority would just kill the people who were excommunicated, especially if they were accused of very serious crimes. Well, also the excommunicate, if you're excommunicated, I think, didn't that mean that you went straight to hell? If Essentially, not- I mean, he, he says he's, he alludes to that the presumption, but not the certainty of damnation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's possible right. that you would not go to hell, but it's more than likely, right? Um, yeah, and well, and that 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 hereditary line lasted all the way through till World War One. You know, you had, mm-hmm. you had the King of England was with the cousin of the the, the German princes. I mean, everybody was related. This every yeah. Spain, mm-hmm. France, they were all cousins. You mm-hmm. know, um, pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, um, let's see. Yeah, so we're talking about England. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that the author describes that the, the, the church-state conflict in England was, was really intense. King Henry II of England, uh, 1154 to 1189, he was consolidating his power, forbade what he considered the improper use of excommunication. The consecration of bishops before they rendered feudal homage to their lords yeah, so they had to pay their their price uh, uh, to become a bishop, uh, the civil authorities. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting. Appeals from the royal courts to the papal courts uh, mm-hmm. and the ordination of serfs. You didn't want the, the common people to be ordained mm-hmm. to go up the, the ladder mm-hmm. uh, otherwise. Well, the appeals um, to the to the papal courts is interesting because, you know, that, that's what you did. There was no formal appeal process, you know, in medieval law. The only thing right. you could do is just write a letter to the pope. And that's what, again, I'm just going to draw my my knowledge of uh, Joan of Arc here. And that's what she insisted time and time again, because you did have the right to do that. You said, you know, if you, if you are acting as a representative of the Pope, 
I want to talk to the Pope. Bring me before the Pope and he will judge. I don't want you judging me because, of course, you knew that these bishops were just in the hands of the English state. So she's like, well, we'll try me before the Pope. You say that you're acting on his authority. Let's let's see. Yes. Thank you. But I, but I also understand, like, if you had an appellate process, you wouldn't want the church to uh, be able to bypass it. Yeah. Uh, which is really what the, the modern church tries to do and not have it not tried to do and not have it dealt with the civil authority and end up blowing up in everybody's faces mm -hmm. uh, with the scandal and all that kind of stuff. So then to continue on the history of these, these uh, issues, uh, there's the story of St. Thomas Beckett, uh, who had been Henry's friend and advisor, but after becoming Archbishop of Canterbury, he showed himself to be uh, pretty independent and a champion of, of the rights of the church. Uh, you know, they had a long and complex uh, conflict between the two of them and he had to go into Beckett had to go into exile twice and, until Henry reportedly muttered quote will no one rid me of this low-born priest um, and taking that as a command four of his knights traveled to Normandy uh, uh, from Normandy to Canterbury and hacked him to death that being Beckett yes. uh, and he was a martyr and uh, his tomb became an important pilgrimage place and and had he, uh, Henry had to be, uh, as a penitent, had to walk barefoot to the slain archbishop's tomb to be ritually scourged, which I guess meant like with, you know, feathers or something, you know, just as a ritual, as opposed to actually scourge him. So it's, yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, pretty important stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, high stakes poker, if you will. Yeah, no kidding. Um, let's see. So the, uh, what else do we want to talk about? The next section. Let's move on to, to canon law, which I think would, it, would interest you. It, it does. Um, the, the, and the canon law is, it, it was important at the time because it was such a, a structure that, that was written down for the administration of the church, but it was used as an example for the civil authorities, you know, as mm -hmm. far as it'd be, it'd be able to appeal to a higher level authority, you know, like if you're a local priest or a bishop and had an issue with somebody, it, it would then go up to Rome and there was a, uh, uh, based upon, Let's see. It, it let's see. Uh, so to begin with, it was an independent and dynamic ch church that possessed a complex machinery of government. Justinian's code uh, became the basis of, of a of the law codes of most kingdoms. Um, and in the mid 12th century, this is uh, from the author, the monk lawyer Gratian of Bologna um, used Justinian to systematize as a church is canon law. And the church still has canon law; it still exists mm -hmm. and it, still, it governs. Uh, the administration of the uh, Catholic Church, and it's it's very specific, mm -hmm. uh, and it, is, it really is a se separate body of law. And and you can and there are canon lawyers, uh, mm -hmm. but you have to be permitted to be to practice canon law. I'm not exactly sure what the process is you have to go through, but I think it, you might even have to get. I know you have to get permission from the bishop, mm -hmm. but you may have to come all the way up to the Vatican to be able to practice canon law. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I could probably figure that out, but uh, there's a limited market. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think you pretty probably have to toe the line. Yeah, I would imagine. I don't think you would be, um, you would be accepted to uh, study I canon law. I could be accepted. You don't think that uh, Mark Bishop could be accepted to practice canon law? You better just hope they don't find this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, all my comments are buried. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, but you know, like even to get like the introduction to the book that I have, that's canon law, mm -hmm. 
um, says you're not even supposed to read it unless you have been, I don't know if you're, if it says you've been permitted, but you have to like prayer, prayerfully reflect on whether it's appropriate for you to even study canon law. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have to be in the right state of spiritual spirituality to, to study it, not be there to pick it apart or something, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um. So let's see. Where was that? Oh, John of Salisbury. He yes. was one of the bishops and scholars of the age and a man who actually witnesses, witnessed Be Beckett's martyrdom had severe misgivings about the, the rigor of the law and urged greater dependence on the spirit of the gospel. Uh, the papal courts in Rome uh, received con a continuous stream of appeals from local and ecclesiastical courts, which you would expect, you know, because if, especially if people were used to just do whatever they thought they could do and getting away with it, you know, people would desperately appeal yeah. for uh, authority to to take a second look at it. Or even if you're just agreed, you don't like the decision, you know, and, and that's that's what can happen in every civil case now in Missouri. You know, you, you, everybody can appeal it and there's so many of them. They get filed, but very few of them prevail because a lot of times they'll just uh, well, can dismiss them um, or not, you know, or you issue what they call a per curiam opinions, maybe a published opinion. They just say, nah, uh, you lose. <laughs> uh, but then they they usually publish a, a, an opinion that that's only to the parties. Hmm. Interesting. So you know, you know why you lost, but you can't tell anybody. <laughs> I mean, you can't. but it's not published, so it's not precedent. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, moving on to uh, the next section, I'll take over here while you're wiping your nose. Um, the, thank you. The, the, you're welcome. I was about yes. to say innocent the third. You want to talk about innocent the third? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go. Go. No, you no, go no, ahead. no, you no, do it. All right. All right. Um, the papal authority reached its zenith with innocent the third, who ruled from 1198 to 1216, was the most powerful of all the popes. Combined the roles of spiritual and temporal ruler. Um, he thought it was his duty to ensure that kings acted accordingly and no earthly authority could check the actions of the Pope. Um, so really just first focusing on Rome, he secured his control over that entirely, then brought the Spanish kingdoms together in the war against the Muslims, and then intervened in disputes between France and England and in internal disputes in both kingdoms. So basically saying, you know, I, I decide what is right and what is wrong, and for the most part, you are all wrong, and I am right. So I think that's that's generally the way it went with, with Innocent. Evidently, that's the way it should have gone. They ended up excommunicating King John of England, which mm -hmm. had the beneficial uh, result of allowing the nobility to extort him uh, to uh, issue the Magna Carta, which, uh, mm -hmm. which was an uh, individual rights doctrine, which was, I think, instrumental in, in the United, creation of the United States yeah. uh, later. Well, I know I've mentioned that to you because you went on a uh, U.S. Capitol tour with me when I was up in, up in D.C., uh, there's a replica of the Magna Carta in the, the crypt of the Capitol building, which is sort of the, the central structure underneath the big rotunda. Um, and it is beautiful and it's carved in gold. It was given to the United States in 1976 by the United Kingdom, of course, referencing um, the, the impact the Magna Carta had on the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Beautiful building, the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too bad that you can't just walk in there, mm. uh, people's house. But there's a yeah. ton of ton of security. Um mm -hmm all playing on their phones yes yes no that's that's accurate that it's is accurate all over the place there's so many of them and they're all just sitting around playing on their phones and yeah. uh yes well there's no real threat well no. especially in when we were at july they're out of mm -hmm. session yeah um, you know who's going to attack an empty building get all the tourists 
<laughs> That's all you'd be attacking. The only people in there are tourists yeah. and people giving tours, and the fat people in uniforms with guns. Yes, I'm trying to think if I saw any of them that were fat. I saw some of them. A couple of them. A couple of them were in shape. You know what? You, you know the the best way to thwart them, I think, is to what? like do a diversionary thing where they have to run like a hundred yards in in any direction, and then they're, they're toast. They're all throwing up. <sighs> Sad, man. But I well, saw kind of. I saw ads everywhere in Washington D.C. in the subways and. And on billboards, uh, Capitol Police starting at seventy-seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Yeah, the Capitol Police officer starting with less benefits, and that's real money in Missouri. I don't know what oh, it yeah. is in DC, but that's real money. Yeah, that's they get they get paid pretty well to to sit around and, and play on their phones and occasionally pat somebody down if they come through and set off the metal detector. The um, uh, well, the, it's bipartisan that they are heroes. They're the oh, real yes. heroes. To quote Norm Macdonald, they're the real heroes. They're the the real heroes of January 6th. They are. That is true. They're heroic. Yes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know what? You know what? We probably would have been more effective in fighting off the insurrectionists at January 6th is to let them all come through and then like ring a bell and say, the tour is over. And they all would have just walked out. <laughs> you know, especially all those old ladies. <laughs> they're all they're all convicted of misdemeanor parading. <laughs> if I ever get convicted of misdemeanor parading, I'm gonna frame it. I'm gonna frame Is that it. an actual thing? Yeah. That they were actually convicted with misdemeanor parade. That's a crime? That is a crime to do because it was an unlawful parading uh within oh. the uh, Capitol building. Interesting. Some were convicted of parading outside the building because yeah. it was an unlawful assembly. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a misdemeanor. yeah, well, that's I know that that's generally the rule is you're not allowed to protest technically within the Capitol building. Like they have a rule about that, but usually the punishment for that is you are asked to stop. Yes, and that is the punishment. Yeah. Would you please leave? Yeah. Uh, hey, can you not do that here? We have a rule. And uh, then if not, yeah. they just escort you out. Well, they say uh, our apologies. We should not have opened the door and let you in and escorted you around. We need to. We need to ask you to leave. <laughs> That probably would have been better for most of them. Now there were a bunch of people. And it's fair to say there were a bunch of people that went in there and and uh, rioted and damaged mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, we do not yet know what the percentage of those people were on the federal payroll, mm. uh, but it's not zero. That's, that. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I made I had the mis- I made the mistake of watching a Tucker Carlson interview before we got started. So, oh, uh, oh, good. about that. All right. So Frederick <laughs> Frederick the second, I think, is the next section. Yes. Emperor Frederick II was the son of Henry VI, and after his father's death, became Innocent's ward. So that's a very uh, powerful thing for Innocent to do, is to be be the ward of the next king. Mm -hmm. After he became of age, Frederick invaded Germany, defeated a rival claimant, and was proclaimed emperor. Um, So that's kind of interesting. So then, let's see what's... uh, I have a, I have on the margin the word ha with an exclamation point. Let's see here. What did I say? Oh, yeah. He vigorously persecuted heresy, but he was also rumored to have murdered three wives. <laughs> That's <laughs> I have. Ha! Uh, and he outraged people by using Muslim soldiers in his hmm. Italian wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why that's outrageous, but uh, uh, but anyway. So he was excommunicated several times, both for failing to go on a crusade as he promised 
but you promised. And for territorial designs, uh, there's a conclave that began in 1241, lasted a year and a half, during which the Roman civic authorities pressured and even physically abused the cardinals to force an election. Pretty interesting. Innocent IV was finally chosen, and having been driven from Rome by Frederick's army, summoned a council to judge the emperor. Uh, Frederick, however, captured 100 bishops on their way to the meeting and held them prisoner. (laughs) (laughs) Innocent then fled to Lyons in France and transferred, transferred the council there. The first council of Lyons declared the emperor deposed announced a crusade against him and placed Germany under interdict. I guess that means no sacraments, right? Yeah. And that's the first time a crusade was ever proclaimed against a Christian monarch. Mm -hmm. And then he died unabsolved, which means he was Mm -hmm. not united with the church. So I did not know there was a crusade against Mm -hmm. essentially Germany. Yeah. That's interesting. It's again, to to go back to the Joan of Arc stuff, that was the big question for both the, the English and the French as they were both sort of under operating under the idea that we are the rightful crusaders against this non-Christian kingdom who has this, you know, non-divinely inherited right to the throne. Because, of course, the English wanted the throne of France and, of course, the French wanted the throne of France because it was their throne. Um, and they both decided that they were the holy ones um, and they both were, were sort of under the, 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 the idea that it could be a crusade in their eyes. Yeah. But, of course, it was a crusade against Christians. Yes. Oh, this is the best kind. Um <laughs> And I like the the next segue is about Louis the Ninth, mm-hmm. and the author says if Frederick the Second epitomized the Pope's view of a bad ruler, Saint Louis Saint Louis the Ninth mm-hmm. of France, twelve twenty six to twelve seventy, embodied the Christian ideal. Must have been a pretty cool dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he um, his mother uh, Blanche of Castile ruled for him until he became of age and impressed upon him the obligations of piety. And uh, admonished him uh, to regard the sins of his people as a reflection on himself, which mm-hmm. nice of our leaders had that kind of thought. No then, kidding. Uh, he attended mass daily, prayed with almost mystical intensity, affiliated himself with the Franciscans. Not so bad. We don't like the Jesuits. The Franciscans, I think, are. Mm-hmm. Yes. And supported the rights of the church and personally fed the poor from his table, which might have been gross. I don't know. Do they get scraps or did he just invite them in for dinner? I don't know. But I mean, I mean, they just come into his table and he ate with them or well, he personally fed them. So maybe he served them. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know much about him. Well, he seems like a pretty cool dude. Um, yeah. He espoused a concept of justice based upon divine law to discourage trial by battle, which is a good thing. I mean, mm-hmm. not that the trial by battle is a good thing, but discouraging it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Made himself able to hear appeals from his subjects and set up a system for. Manumission, uh, which is sending from the hand of serfs. So basically uh, freeing them or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, lifting them from their obligations. Went on a crusade, was captured or ransom, but he brought back relics from the Holy Land when he mm-hmm. got ransomed. But then he ended up dying in North Africa on another crusade. Hmm. That sucks so, for him. I uh, I need to read about Louis the Ninth. Yeah, seems like a pretty cool dude and amidst all of these horrible, horrible people that we're also reading about. Truth, truth. So what about the papal politics? We talked about a good emperor, a bad emperor. Excuse me, I just coughed. Uh, great, thank you for the announcement. Urban, Urban IV, uh, their politics, he's, you know, he supported the claims of Louis, Louis' brother, Charles of Anjou. 
to Sicily, thereby beginning a tangled conflict that would continue into the next century. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a long conflict. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, so it's just you know, the popes getting involved in politics and who should re- rule in what area. Uh, Martin, let's see, who's Martin? Martin, uh, the, the, uh, Charles pressured the cardinals into electing a Frenchman, Martin IV. Martin blindly supported Charles' ambitions. Uh, some crusades happened. The Martin excommunicated opposed King Peter III of Aragon, who accepted the Sicilian's invitation to become the ruler. I mean, it's like one thing after another. Mm-hmm. That's why Pope shouldn't get involved in those things. Yeah, no kidding. But there were yep, some just... good things happening, as he kind of mentions in this next section, transformation of society. Um, yeah, so like some the, good stuff's going yeah, on. Yeah, talking about like the, the code of chivalry. Mm-hmm. which was like the kind of like we call the Geneva Convention about having a certain amount of honor and war if it's possible. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I thought that was interesting that they, there was a restraint of bloodshed. So they, they had Monday through Wednesday fighting. It was forbidden on, I guess, the Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at some point. Mm-hmm. And it was completely forbidden during the holy season. Mm-hmm. Considered a um, the peace of God and the truce of God. Um, and then the, there was the fourth Lateran council in 1215 made the absolute prohibition on clergy shedding blood. Uh, it also forbade them from practicing surgery, which I guess back in the day is probably a better thing. They probably killed more people than they yeah, saved, <laughs> whatever uh, kind of stuff. And they, they also, uh, could not participate in a barbarian ritual judicial process called the ordeal in which a person, accused person was tried either of being, being made to handle a hot iron or being thrown in a pond. <laughs> I think what is the, the pond wasn't the pond like if they if they float their their uh their they're guilty if they sink yes. they're innocent yes because if you dead. float then it's yeah if, if you float then it's unnatural it shows even having yes. some unnatural dealings then if, yeah. Yeah, if you think you're dead uh, but it yeah. is interesting because this would have been a huge transformation and it was very very respected like interestingly because again sort of drawing on my my knowledge of Joan of Arc and other like medieval battles but you know it was such a huge taboo to fight on days when you couldn't fight like they had a schedule and it's like if you do this you were just a horrible horrible person horrible horrible ruler for commanding your people to do this and it was it was understood in that way uh, they were also kind of bound by the weather too that's not something we think about um, really with modern warfare, um, but really they only fought during the summer because they physically could not fight wars during the, the, the fall and the winter if it was too cold, too rainy, too anything, because they just could not move people um, yeah. because they would all die. <laughs> well, like the, the Greeks had a very limited uh, war seasons too because they had to, they had to be uh, not when they're cr- collecting the crops. You know, so mm-hmm. they, had, they had certain season, seasonal fighting each year, mm-hmm. which was limited because the other ways they had to go yeah. back to, to collect the crops and mm-hmm. well yeah all the, the the soldiers were farmers and same thing for this time period too right it was, it was all the people who were basically just rich enough to afford a horse for for the most part yep so all these these kind of restraints on bloodshed and and uh, not having trial by battle you know mm-hmm. and, and those kind of uh those dual type of uh, it ends up showing a respect for reason where you're you're, you're trying to get away from these these well, if if I won, be, I won because God wanted me to win, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I'm right, and so they they actually created a, a developing respect for reason in the West as opposed to these kind of superstitious or God ordained the outcome, which to me I have a little note in the the the, the sidelight is that they're really getting back to the ancients, you know, like mm-hmm. the the philosophy of Socrates where you're trying to use reason as opposed to these superstitions, so. Mm-hmm. 
thousand years or a thousand years later, they're, they're getting back to what already been really yeah. believed. But, Very true. So, um, so we want to talk about the next one. There's uh, the brief discussion of communes, which mm-hmm. became popular for a period of time. Um, let's see that, which is, I guess was more of a, um, really like what we would consider like a monastery now. Um, mm-hmm. The commune, commune movement brought about citizens in the towns into conflict with the bishops who traditionally exercised governance of these towns. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a, a mention of, uh, let's see, do, 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 do. there was a there's a guy who, Arnold of Brescia, our steer man who nonetheless was a revolutionary, accused Pope Hadrian IV of corruption, led a revolt, revolt that, drew, that uh, drove him out of Rome, Hadrian that is, they seized church property and complained, proclaimed a commune that was meant to restore ancient Roman Republic. The Pope returned, and uh, he, the guy was burned as a heretic. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, there's a risk reward there. Yeah, that's true. King for a day. Hmm, very uh, true. Then, the, 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 then there was the what was really important for society was the formation of guilds, mm-hmm. which were merchants, merchants and craftsmen that that. Uh, try to organize themselves uh, uh, to some extent to uh, have a little more say in, in the world and, and to, to, um, to also assist themselves in, in trade and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which they, they also provided for burial of dead members and age of their survivors, kind of an insurance program. Uh, that was a big, big change is really the forerunner of, of our, of the modern labor union movement. Mm-hmm. Very true. So the religious life was also uh, getting reformed around this in the Middle Ages. They, they had both new and reformed religious communities. They had monasteries, of course, we're talking about. Uh, um, um, uh, let's see. The success was, uh, in a sense, of, uh, uh, also its failure, as the author points out, <clears throat> because their reputations for austerity and holiness attracted generous donations that threatened to undermine those same virtues, which, which yeah. you can see that, that happening. You know, I mean, if you have a really good, um, holy group, but then people want to reward that. And you see that kind of like in, in today's society too, if you see a good person that's really struggling and everybody gives them a bunch of money and the next thing there's scandal and corruption mm-hmm. and stuff. It's not necessarily going to happen, but it, there's more of a temptation there. True. And, um, you know, there's reforms of it, uh, because of the corruption, sometimes they just simply expelled lazy or lax monks. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an early 12th century uh, experiment that placed temporal power in the hands of lay brothers, allowing the clerics to devote themselves to spiritual matters, but it still ended up corrupting uh, and, and tempting the, the other people that are involved mm-hmm. uh Clooney established a monastic system somewhat like, like feudalism so there's a pyramid a hierarchical structure mm-hmm. um they had dependent houses that did not have elected abbots but were governed by priors appointed from Clooney, which seemed to be very successful i think they mm-hmm. had like thousands of them like the, the, the 1450 daughter houses is the number he gets, which is impressive because yeah. i'd never heard of this place before reading this book and we've in this this place keeps coming up this is like the third chapter we've read that mentions Clooney as the sort of source of either theological sort of wisdom or, or very like strong power here in the Middle Ages. And I'd never heard of this monastery, but I guess it was, it was the place to be in the Middle Ages. Yep, yep. Um, <clears throat> of course, if it, at the, the abbot in the system ends up taking a lot of his time with administration, Yeah, which is necessarily true of any successful organization. You find yourself doing a lot more paperwork than the actual spiritual work. Mm-hmm. 
So then there's uh let's see, what's the next thing? Calma Calmadolis. Sure. Uh talking about the revival of the hermetical life. Um, there are structures based upon Benedict the Benedictine rule, and there's Saint Ramold. Uh, was an Italian abbot who was forced out of his monastery because of severity, then formed a group of hermits, which I didn't know you could have a group of hermits, hmm. but, uh, and it, into a new order called the Camaldolese from their location, and they practice severe penances. I'm not hmm. sure what severe penances would be. Uh, it seems like this monastery isn't uh, awful enough for me. I want a worse experience, so I'm going to start my own group. Um, then there's Carthusians. It's always named after like where they were, I guess. St. Bruno, a German, found a new order of monks called the Carthusians from the location of their monastery near Chartreuse in the French Alps. Probably a very pretty place. They lived primarily as hermits and came together only for liturgy. That mm-hmm. That's more of a group of hermits. Yes. Know, yes. Or something. And occasional common activities. Probably like baseball or something. Cistercians. <laughs> uh, Sister Syrians, Cistercians, Cistercians, Cistercians. In 1098, three Benedictines, Saint Alberic, Saint Robert, and Saint Stephen Harding. I always want to call him uh, Stephen um, Hawking. Hawking. Yeah, I see that. Yes. I don't think it, he's going to be canonized anytime soon. He will never be canonized. I think he was a pretty <laughs> bad person, wasn't he? Uh, that's what I've heard. I know he was a devout atheist. <laughs> devout. If you can be one. You can't be a devout atheist. I think you can. <sighs> I was right, very I'm, devoted to the idea that there is no God. I'm I'm uh I'm too tired to argue. We're getting to the end of the <laughs> Yeah, we need to, to to speed things up here, I think, a little bit. Uh all right. Well we can kind of skip through that. So uh let's see. Uh, there's a mention of contemplation. These monks, you know, uh because they were trying to like they're trying to get like the day-to-day business. Out, out of the way so they can contemplate things and there's no God in deeper ways. Move beyond limited <laughs> human concepts into a mystic knowledge of the divine. That's more of my idea of what a monastery does, you know, <laughs> pray and think and that kind of stuff. So they mentioned, <clears throat> well, I mentioned St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I guess it's Clairvaux, Clairvaux mm-hmm. um, who entered Citriou with 30 of his relatives and companions and soon made uh, prior of its daughter house of Clairvaux was in some ways the most important religious leader of the Middle Ages, not only as a reformer of ma- monastic life, but as a theologian and preacher. I don't even know who this guy is. I've never heard of him. Monks became uh, Pope. I got to read about oh, him. Bernard. Also, named also this after, guy. Like big dogs in the in the snow. Yeah, that's true. Might have been named after him. Probably. That's possible, actually. Um, but then also his uh, uh, another religious leader, he says somewhat less important than Bernard, who I thought his name was Sugar at first, but Suger, S-U-G-E-R, died in 1151, uh, became abbot of St. Denise, um, primarily because of the elaborateness of the Benedictine liturgy. Suger and Peter the Venerable, abbot of Cluny, uh, found themselves at cross purposes with Bernard. Um, so he, he was rebuked uh, by Bernard at one point, um, but realized that uh, you know they're equally represented uh, of the spirit of the time. So two very competing people there, but also very much representative of, of the general feeling of the monastic life at the time. I didn't appreciate the, the discussion of abbotesses. Mm-hmm. So the female leaders of, of an abbey, uh, you know, basically like nuns, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also, I think they could probably, 
Well, yeah, I mean, they, they were a spiritual authority and presided over large, complex, and wealthy institutions. Although, unlike abbots, they seldom were involved in secular politics, which is smart. Yeah, um, okay. They specifically mentioned St. Hildegard of Binden. Was an educated German, what? Bingen. Bingen. Yes. Was an educated German abbess who had mystical visions and wrote complex musical compositions to express them. With the Which, approval. by the way, yes. I, I have a copy of her um her the, her I guess diary or her her transcriptions of her visions. Um, huh. an old English or not old English Middle English translation that is somewhere in the basement. If you want to pick that up and read it, and I haven't read it yet, but uh, uh, you could probably uh, go I'll grab it right now out of one of my totes. I will not be doing that. Oh, um, so then there's a let's see, go, go forward to double monasteries, which are like you have a monastery of male monks and female monks, uh, female monks, monkettes, monkeys. I think they're called nuns, dad. <laughs> Even then, were they called nuns? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but after a time, the arrangement was forbidden. Mm. Probably had some scandalous affairs, yeah, most likely. St. Francis of Assisi. Yes, he's big one. Yeah, he's he's the um, father, you know, son of a wealthy guy. I think a lot of people know it, but not him. Gave up everything, lived like a hermit, mm-hmm. and um, urged people to give up everything and live with a complete faith in God's benevol- benevolent providence, which is great for a certain percentage of the population. But if we all did it, we'd all starve. Just yeah. a little pooping on his parade a little bit there, but I that think it's, true. it's a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, here's uh, the fact about him that I didn't know. Uh, underwent a sudden conversion, of course. He repudiated, repudiated his worldly ways, gave all of his possessions, and ritually stripped himself naked in front of the bishop um, yeah. after his father disowned him. Um, and I did not uh, did not know that about him, that he stripped naked um, in front of the bishop. And he was later called Il Poverello, the poor little man, um, because he gave up everything to, to pursue this life, um, which yeah, is interesting. Famous story about him. You yeah. should know. Um... I don't know what I want to talk about any more of him. You know, he's he, he of course created the Franciscan monks. Yeah, and I think the term mendicants is is good to throw out here because that keeps getting yep. used. Um, but generally, the the idea that even monasteries should owe nothing and that his followers should live as beggars, um, because that's sort of the concept that we get into with Saint Dominic Guzman, uh, which we're talking about here next, Castilian priest. Yes, the Dominicans uh, founded similar ideas, quickly attracted followers like Francis. Um, and he called his community the Order of Preachers, and they followed the rule of the Augustin- Augustinian canons. The dedication to combating heresy drew them to the intellectual life, um, uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to just the, the Franciscans, who were sort of just the more uh, hermits, more so living, you know, in the in poverty. And the Dominicans, similar concept as mendicants, but um, more so focused on the intellectual life as well. Yep. And then there's uh, Carmelites, which is another uh, group. There was a, a Carmelite sisters in um, St. Peter's. Um, oh really? Uh, or St. Charles, I should say. At St. Peter's grade school, they had a Carmelite. Um, what do you call the nun, the nun play convent? Yes. But then they they got old and mm-hmm. when he joined the Carmelites, and so that got sold off. Yeah. Uh, we had a group of Carmelite nuns come up to campus not too long ago. Well, to to the Catholic Newman Center. Yes. Always very nice people. They have to be. Yes, that is true. Um. So what uh, nuns? Yeah, we talked about nuns. Age of the Friars, Franciscans' unique combination of austerity and joy made them the most popular religious communities, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're spiritual, wouldn't that be a huge draw? You know, yeah. 
austerity, which, you know, the spirituality of it, but also joyfulness. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty, pretty powerful punch. Two punch, yeah. two, uh, two pieces, you say. Uh, the intellectual life. So uh, both Franciscans and Dominicans began pursuing advanced studies. And that's really where I think their long-term influence uh, in mm-hmm. philosophy and, and society came is, is through. And there used to be, I don't know if there still is, a ton of Franciscan and, uh, and Dominican uh, professors, mm-hmm. instructors and teachers. And I think that really kind of got supplanted by the dreaded well, they needed to not be dreaded Jesuits, mm-hmm. uh, but they are dreaded, uh, uh, dreaded, the, 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 maligned, maybe. The maligned means it's unfair, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. Despicable. D- despicable. Mm, there you go. Despicable Jesuits. I do like the note he has there at the bottom uh, that anti-mendicant hostility was so strong that a few years later, the Dominican Aquinas had to be protected by royal archers as he lectured. Mm-hmm. So many yeah. people were so angry at this ideology of like sort of withdrawing from the world um, in such a way that, you know, people, I guess, wanted to kill St. Thomas Aquinas um, yeah. as he lectured. He'd be protected by archers, which is, which is wild. Yes. Um, so what else do we want to we, we Yeah, I wanted to stop here, but you wanted to go on to 161. Well, because otherwise the next reading would be much, much longer. And I think you would you would not have as good of a time. All right. So let's talk about wealth and property, the snare of wealth. Yes. Uh, those that uh, did renounce their wealth virtually had uh, had to become monks because what else are you going to do? You're going to starve yeah. to death. True. Uh, uh, the rich were expected to be generous. This is a societal expectation, uh, generous to their charities. Uh, which was a reason God had given them wealth. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword, so to speak. Um, God gave you the wealth, but that means you're supposed to be giving it away. And so the the lords distributed alms and endowed schools, hospitals, orphanages, lepros area, which I assume is houses for lepers mm-hmm. and other institutions. Um, and they used to not uh, go along with usury, which is interest on loans, which means they just turned to the Jews. Which yeah. <laughs> uh, Muslims Muslims prohibited uh, usury mm-hmm. as well, I believe. Yeah, uh, and so um, it's kind of funny. They, oh, it's, they get a loan from the Jews, no mm-hmm. charge interest. At least they have cash because nobody's going to want to loan money if there's not interest, because then it's not mm-hmm. a loan; it's a, a gift, and you pay it pay it over in installments. Pay it True. I guess so. I, I don't understand the the usury. I guess they just don't understand uh, monetary policy. I guess. Yeah, I think it goes back to the to the Aristotelian uh, idea that you know something has to come from something, and if mm-hmm. you're making money off of something, you're not really making money off of anything if you're charging interest. Like there's no labor that's going into it; you're just charging it for the time, I guess. It's kind of like how we view the federal government. It's like they're not actually doing it; they're just printing money. I mean, essentially, I think so. Right. Um, so there's a discussion of the new ideal of justice, you know, talking about, uh, incur- you know, the, the church encouraging just wages and just prices and, um, and kind of get involved in those kind of issues. Um, what's the next thing? Heterodox reform. The reform this has was actually, mm-hmm. I thought the most interesting section. So take um, over, go ahead, summarize it. Sure. Um, Jake's basically just talking about a lot of uh, dissident sects that decided that they knew better than the church. Um, and that, you know, the church was awful, which in some regards, you know, it was incredibly corrupt, but they declared that they are the, the ones who should now, uh, know best, uh, especially a layman named Ch- Tanchelm who around yeah. the year 1100 first put on a monk's robes, preached in the fields, calling the church a brothel, the sacraments of pollution, 
uh, then put on regal garments and declared themselves betrothed to the Virgin Mary, um, <laughs> which seems like a good way to go about things. He was killed in an armed skirmish. Uh, yeah. um, but but uh, he, he did uh, he has his movement. movement. He survived several centuries, which I thought yeah. was pretty weird. The what about Richard Waldo? Yeah, well, I wanted to mention here um, that uh, the Brethren of the Free Spirit um, exalted semi-ecstatic mystical experiences, a uh, movement that, that survived for several centuries. Um, so this idea is sort of the, the, the individual sort of stuff, you know, the I can know God best, which is, I think, is sort of a precursor to what we're seeing sort of in the, the, the Reformation a little bit later as we really start to see, you know, very dissonant sects become a lot more popular. Um, but right. yeah, Waldo, Peter Waldo. Definitely the same thing. Heard of for a layman. This is kind of impressive. Translated the Bible into French and on that yeah. basis concluded that the church was corrupt. Sold all his goods, abandoned his wife, began preaching and attracted followers called the poor men of Lyons. He was expelled in 1185, um, the, but his movement uh, spread fairly widely. Um, but they uh, constituted a direct attack on the institutional character of the church, hierarchy, priesthood, the sacraments, purgatory which is essentially the same things that we're going to see with Martin Luther later on. Uh, so it's interesting to see these same concepts pop up earlier. Each believer thought to be inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. Renunciation of property was the principal sign of authentic faith. Um, and then similarly, humility. Mm-hmm. Sorry, was, go ahead. I was going to go into the humiliati. Yes. Uh, translated as the humble. Mm-hmm. A lay group founded in Italy in the late 12th century and composed of both men and women, single and married, to try to live the simple life. Uh, they did not attack the church and were approved by Innocent III, allowed them to preach about morality, but not about doctrine. <laughs> Which is interesting. Makes sense. I mean, if you're like, hey, you're good people, you can teach people how to be good people. Just don't try to answer any theological questions because yes. you're kind of stupid. <laughs> uh, then there's Joachim of Flora. Mm-hmm. I don't know about him. A bad, uh, see, he became a Cistercian, however you pronounce that. Cistercian. elected uh, abbot, but abandoned that office to devote himself to expounding what he claimed were the hidden meanings of scripture. Hmm. Uh, history, he thought, was divided into three ages. The age of the Father, the age of the Son, and the age of the Holy Spirit, which beginning, began around 1260. It would be characterized by holy spiritual faith based in divine inspiration. Interesting. Uh, Joachistism stayed alive. I wonder if I wonder if that's like our township is called Joachim Platten. I wonder if Hmm. uh, Joachim is somehow a a reference to that. Maybe, but there are also just people named Joachim, so could be anybody. What if they're named after him? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was Joachim before. I don't know. Um, the reform movement uh, deeply influenced lay piety. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Big begins and begards, begins and begards. The origin of uh, whose names are uncertain, were respectively female and male groups that began in the Low Countries in the 12th century. The groups were made up of lay people who are self-supported, self-supporting, engaged in works of charity. Sounds good. Hmm. Very true. And then there's the Cathars and the Albigensian Albigensian Crusade. There you go. Um, major deviant religious movement of the Middle Ages was led by the Cathars, the pure, who began in the Near East with a series uh, with a species of Gnosticism and Manichaeism. 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 Made their way westward through the Balkans and found a home in France. Very fascinating story. Uh, they organized as a church with their own clergy and diocese. Uh, there's scarcely a Christian uh, was scarce, scarcely a Christian heresy at all, but a rival religion based upon extreme dualism of matter and spirit. What do you think of that one? 
Yeah, they, it's interesting. Uh, well, he goes on to say, yeah, it was probably what you're about to say. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. Because human sexuality is inherently evil, and procreation mm-hmm. of children traps the souls in bodies. Mm-hmm. I guess they should yes. be kept in heaven. Yeah, that's um, wild. Perfect uh, refrained from, uh, prefect, perfect refrained from all sexual activity while the believers were allowed free sex, but we're not supposed to procreate. Yeah, which is interesting. He also says there um, is an extreme, you know, uh, dualism where the biblical God was the God of evil and the church was the invention of Satan, which yeah. is insane. Um, but kind of what what some people I think still believe today that you know, the church itself is the Antichrist especially as you get out into the more sort of charismatic um, Protestant groups out there that think, you know, the church is everything evil in the world. Mm. Um, so the, but, uh, this thing really, I'd never even heard of these people before, by the mm. late 12th century, the movement had supported some French nobles, especially count Raymond, the sixth of Toulouse, as well as a popular base. Um, the Southern French bishops were despised as worldly and a series of preaching missions mostly failed. So they're trying to preach to these people, I guess. Mm-hmm. Innocent the third proclaimed a crusade that captured several Cathar, I guess they're not considered Christian, Cathar strongholds, committing atrocities in the process. Notoriously, a papal <laughs> legate at one siege was reported to have shouted, kill them all. God will know his own. Yay. <laughs> uh, they really did not like these guys. Complex political intrigues followed. There's a second crusade in 1226. Um and uh, 200 Cathars were burned as heretics after Raymond submitted a second time. Man, and the movement eventually died out. I guess so. You know, you yeah. I can't see why. I mean, that doesn't seem like there are any reasons for them to, to die out. That's they they had a, a view of heresy mm-hmm. uh, that explains some of their ac- actions because they considered it like a disease. Mm-hmm. Like a virus that spreads and it would poison the entire community. So you have to wipe it out. Um, so that, that which which brings us to the Inquisition, uh, which is not necessarily the title of a Mel Brooks song, but it is. Uh, you ever see that Inquisition? So. Uh, History of the World. Mm. Uh, that movie. You have not seen that movie, have you? I have not. I yeah, it's a section about the Inquisition. Oh, good. Val's uh, um, funny torture. Oh, uh, there you so go. The, the judicial process processes later institutionalized in the Inquisition were first employed in 1022. It's a long time ago yeah, when no 12 kidding. cans of Orleans were burned at the stake, accused of denying the most fundamental doctrines of faith. Yikes. Um, uh, every diocese was ordered to have an office charged with ferreting out heresy. You got to find it. You mm. kill these people. Um, people could submit a list of their enemies whose testimony was then inadmissible at these trials, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Like, that being helpful. Say, mm-hmm. you know what? Uh, I'm charged with a crime, but here's a list of people who I know are my enemies. So if they, they, they're not allowed to testify <laughs> because they can't be believed they're my enemies. But I, guess, <laughs> I guess you would then be on their list of enemies and you couldn't convict them of anything. That's Torture true. was permitted in order to obtain a confession because, of course, mm-hmm. uh, that's how you get the truth. Well, of course, naturally. Uh, the chief purpose of the Inquisition was pers- persuade the accused heretic to recant, but you better recant. Mm-hmm. Um, and a repentant heretic uh, could be snatched from the flames at the last moment. Which, again, was exactly what happened to Joan of Arc. Um, she at first admitted to, to what they were saying, you know, under fear of being killed. Um, yes. And then uh, because yeah, she was brought to the stake and then she's like, well, no, stop. I, I repent. 
Um, but then she and so she signed something that that was technically a legal document, although there's debate over whether or not she actually signed it or whether or not she actually even read it at all. Um, and of course, then she was brought back. And, she, and then a few days later, she was found to, to do the same thing. She put on men's clothing, which was like one of the big charges against her because she was wearing men's clothing that was forbidden, uh, forbidden. Um, so like, oh, well, now you're uh, um, uh, a heretic who's going you, you, you've confessed that you were a heretic and you've repented. And now you've gone back to it, which means now you're doubly guilty because you acknowledged it was wrong and in acknowledging it's wrong. Now you are so much more guilty. And now we have every reason to, to burn you at the stake. There's some logic to that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you believe that stuff. Yes, I think that's true. it. Is that the yes. end of our discussion of chapter? Yeah, we'll pick it back up I with the we... Crusades and some, yeah. some stuff about Thomas Aquinas, I think, next episode. So it should be a good episode. So we'll enjoy the discussion of the Crusades. Yeah, <laughs> a romp story. So, what are your yeah. thoughts about the chapter? No, I liked it. I don't, I don't... Discussion. Yeah, no, I thought it was. I thought it was great. I'm looking forward to the to the next half. Um, some good stuff in there. I was I was surprised by how much you know we covered there. Didn't really know when the Franciscans, the Dominicans were founded, so it was good to learn about that. Uh, the, the the continued role of monasteries and monks and and friars and stuff like that. The the theological tradition is of course very interesting. All the the trials and conflicts and nonsense going on at the time no i can see like you know from the author said in a previous chapter like the actual liturgy was well established you know Mm -hmm. so that seems to have continued it's just all this administration of the church and and of the civil society and and all that and the rules of celibacy and all that stuff really Mm -hmm. to to focus at this time of the church history very true good stuff do you have any other closing thoughts no all right, this has been Season 6, Episode 8, if I'm remembering correctly, of Unlimited Opinions. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at U-L-M-T-D Opinions. I've been Adam Bishop. I'm still Mark Bishop. It is late. It is 940. Oh, We've talked for a while. <laughs> Keeping me up late. <laughs>